Amen. Didn't sound like you're ready to be done praying, Josh. You... Merry Christmas. Um, man, what a glorious time. Um, I had this weird thought. Do you think that Jesus, when he was like 12 to 14, 16, do you think that he was leaving doors open all over the house <laughs> and light switches on? Because what do we say when our kids do that? Thank you. Were you born in a barn? I mean, <laughs> you think about this, shouldn't that be like the highest compliment that you could possibly give somebody? Because where was Jesus born? In a barn. So when we say, were you born in a barn, it should be like, wow, I have this amazing child in my home that, I'm sorry, I just, because I was going to say, you know, as we're celebrating Christmas, um, everything about the nativity, okay, if you have a a nativity at your home somewhere, um, little one, big one out front in your yard or on a table somewhere in your house, it centers around a manger, Okay, now the manger is a feeding trough. That's what a manger is. And and in the story that we have with uh, the nativity, the birth account of Jesus, um, you have this repeated over and over and over, that they wrapped him in cloth and they laid him in a manger. It doesn't ever say that they were actually in a barn. Okay, we infer that because what they had at their disposal was a manger. So the manger is this, probably not wood in Israel in the first century, okay? Probably stone, carved out, hollowed out. But it was just simply a, uh, a thing, uh, an implement, a device, a piece of equipment, uh, furniture, whatever you want to call it, that they would fill with hay or whatever, whatever food they had for their cattle, and they would eat out of it. So that's what they had for the Savior of the world, the, um, the God of heaven who created the earth, came down, was born in human form, and there's no room for them in the inn, right? There's no place for them. If, and what's going on is that there's a census being taken, and Joseph and Mary both are of the house of David, David's home, his original ancestral home was Bethlehem. So they came from Nazareth down to Bethlehem because that's where they had to go to get counted in the census. It was the law and they had to do it or else they were going to be in big trouble. So they get there. There's an inn, one inn, basically. So it says in scripture, there's no place for them in the inn. That, that was probably it. It's not a big town and probably doesn't have a bunch of hotels. Just one place for visitors to come, and all the people got there ahead of them because they're probably not coming from as far. They fill up the inn, and they have to find somewhere to go. Mary is going to give birth, and somebody probably graciously gives them uh, the use of their stable. 
And so our nativities have all the sheep and the cattle and, you know, the whatever animals that you've included in yours with the shepherds and the wise men and all of that. And in the center of it is a manger. And that's where they lay Jesus. So here's, here's what you have to understand. A couple things. One is a manger is a feeding trough. And even though it's probably convenient or expedient or necessary for them to use this to lay Jesus in, in their minds, probably it's just what we need to do because we need somewhere to keep him safe and warm. So we'll, we'll put him here. We'll clean it and we'll make it use, useful for that. But in God's mind, there's a symbol that he is um, going to make sure that we get, which is that a feeding trough is really intended for just that purpose. And Jesus is going to be what? What does he say that he is? I am the bread of life. He says, um, in fact, in, in the Gospel of John, my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have eternal life. That we, we must partake of him. So they lay him in the manger, and it's, a, it's actually a true symbol of who he really is. He's the bread of life. In Deuteronomy, it says that they were given manna for 40 years in the, in the wilderness um, so that God could teach the Israelites that they did not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that came from the mouth of God. That was why he gave them manna, and then Jesus says that he is the manna that's come down from heaven. Bethlehem, the, the name means house of bread. Literally means the house of bread. Beth in Hebrew is house. So you have Bethsaida, you have Bethel. Bethel means house of God, and you have Bethlehem, so it's the house of bread. And so Jesus is born at the house of bread. He's laid in a manger, and he tells us later, I am the bread of life. All these symbols and uh, all these accounts from the Old Testament, the, the prophecies about who the Messiah would be and what he would do and how he would save people from their sins, all of it leads to this point that God has been making from day one, which is, as much as you need to eat food to live, you need God. He's inviting us to know that, and he's inviting us to receive it, and he's inviting us to partake of it, and he's inviting us to find our life in him. And it's not just that your life would be better if you had God in it, which is true, and we see the devastation that happens when people refuse to allow God into their life, uh, the destruction, the pain, and the problems, and the, all the rest of it. Not only that, but also the lack of hope, and the lack of a future, and the lack of eternal life, and all those things. But we also see that um, when we trust in Him, something happens, which is that we find the fulfillment that we can't find anywhere else. That there is 
purpose and peace and joy that is only found in him. And, and he's calling us into that life. He's calling us to recognize it. And he's showing us how the world doesn't offer it. And he, he has his hands open to us all the time saying, just come. You're, you're invited. You're welcome. Why do we continually refuse that? thinking that there's a better way or that my way is better or that I don't really need God or I only need him to this extent or I can maybe have him just as a part of my life. So the story, we're going to pick it up in Luke chapter 2 and see a little bit more about what this means. But um, it tells us about God's declaration, what he's willing to do, how far he's willing to go, to what extent he's willing to sacrifice just to make that gift available to us. So let's stand as we read God's word this morning. Luke chapter 2. And we're just going to read a little part of the, the story. It's verses 4 through, through 7. It says this, says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And Father, we uh, are amazed. In fact, it, it can't, we can't even really understand how the God of heaven would be willing not only to be born a human being, um, but in such humble circumstances to an unknown couple in an obscure place without even a, a place to put their heads for the night. But you're showing us something about who you are and something about what we need. And Father, we pray that we would get it, that we would understand it, that we would receive it, that we would apply it, that we would thrive in it, that we would enjoy it, that we would celebrate it. Uh, thank you for it, Lord. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for um, all that you've done and all that you continue to do. You didn't stop there. You, and you, you haven't stopped yet, and you won't stop reaching out to us, beckoning us, calling us to yourself, saving us until one day we are in glory with you, experiencing all the glory that you had from eternity past, and somehow, not just seeing it, but being reflective of it ourselves, Lord. It's a future we can't quite comprehend why you would even offer it to us, Lord, but it's offered, and Lord, I pray that we would um, receive it for your glory, for our sake, and for the world to see in Jesus' name, amen. So as the story continues, um, something else happens, and we'll, we'll talk about it probably at the end here. Um, but the shepherds are out in the fields and they're tending their flock by night and they're outside. And so there's another thing that's unique about Bethlehem 
So it's the house of bread. It's the house of David. It's where King David, the one who slayed Goliath, it's the one who became king. Okay, his, It's his birth home. Um, but it's also the place where they raised Passover lambs. Um, and so in that time, what they would do, so there was a law about the lambs that they had to use for Passover. People would come to Jerusalem, and it would explode uh, during these, these festivals, and people would just come from everywhere, all over Israel. So hundreds of thousands of people would gather in Jerusalem. And every home, they could have multiple homes together, but every household had to have a Passover lamb. They had, enough, they had to have enough lamb for everyone to eat. So they had to kind of determine, and they couldn't have a lot of leftovers. So they had to figure out how much everybody could eat, but everybody had to have at least one lamb per household. And so what they would do is that they would raise the lambs in Bethlehem. And so they had to have a year-old lamb. It had to be raised outside, so it couldn't be indoors for that whole year. It had to be without blemish. So these lambs, you can just imagine Bethlehem is just full of sheep and lambs all over the countryside. Shepherds are everywhere raising them and protecting them fiercely for that year. They cannot, because without blemish means it cannot have had a broken leg. It cannot have had a wound. It can't have a scar. So they have to be with them outdoors all year, protecting and making sure that all these lambs are safe and secure and not being harmed, not, not running off and breaking their leg and not being attacked by animals and not being, okay, stupid as they kind of, we think that they are. They can't get lost. They, they are out. So the shepherds that we see in the story that the angel comes and declares that Christ is born are taking care of, we believe, Passover lambs. And then what does John the Baptist say about Jesus? Remember? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these things, all of them begin to remind us about Egypt. Okay, Passover, the Jewish people did not think about Passover without recalling and, and retelling the story of the Exodus. In fact, if you read through your Old Testament, what you're going to find is that over and over and over, that the, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, they, they constantly remembered, celebrated, recounted, told each other, and encouraged each other with the Exodus because it defined who they were, that God had done something unique and special in the world, that he had taken uh, slaves for his very own and made them his possession. He took them out of captivity and he set them free and he put them in the promised land. And that whole thing is a symbol, it's a prophecy about human nature being slaves to sin, God reaching out, rescuing people by himself, by his power in what he's going to do on the cross for anyone who will receive it, anyone who will follow, and he will set them free from sin and he'll give them eternal life, the, the promised land, heaven. That, that's his promise he showed it in the Exodus, and then the Jewish people constantly were thinking about Exodus, constantly thinking about what God had done, constantly remembering how God loved them and sacrificed for them and did for them what they could not do for themselves. This is what we always say about salvation. God does for you 
what you could not do for yourself. And God did for them what they couldn't do for themselves. They couldn't free themselves. They had to depend on God to do that. And so what happens in Jesus coming down and being born a human being, God doing what only God could do for people that couldn't do it for themselves, is that it reminds them of something really potent and powerful. God is going to humble himself. And he's going to sacrifice himself. You go back to Exodus, and what you see is the very first time the word humility is ever um, mentioned in Scripture is in Exodus 10, verse 4, and it's where Pharaoh and Moses are kind of having, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a showdown. It really isn't Moses. Moses is just God's instrument um, to rescue his people. But Moses says to Pharaoh, what will it take for you to humble yourself before God? First time that that word's ever mentioned in Scripture. What will it take for you to humble yourself before God? All these plagues and all these, these destructive things that are happening to, to you and your country are God seeking to humble you, to let you know that you can serve and honor him, that you can depend on him, that you can obey him, that he's good, that, that the way that you're going is destruction, but his way is life. What, what's it going to take? How much death and destruction and turmoil and evil and murder and lies, and, and how much of that will you endure before you finally come to the point where you say, this isn't working. I'm, I need God, and I need to honor him as God. But as you know the story, what happens is what? He never does humble himself. So the tenth plague on Egypt is the death of the firstborn. And the sign and symbol and solution for the Israelites, for the Hebrews in Goshen in Egypt is the Passover. Kill this lamb, this innocent thing that has done nothing. Put its blood on your doorposts and the angel of death will pass over your home, meaning that you will be covered, you'll be protected under the blood of the lamb. You know why we use these terms in, in, the, in the Christian church? It's not a Christian thing. It's, it's a cosmic spiritual reality that God revealed long, long ago. There has to be blood to pay for sin. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And so the blood on the doorpost covers you. Jesus is going to provide that. All those things begin to stir in us. What is, what is Jesus doing? It's amazing to think about all the things that happened in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled, all the prophecy, all the stories. This is why we say Jesus is on every page. Everywhere you look, you have the fingerprint of Jesus that he is fulfilling this sign, this symbol, this prophecy, this law, this command. He, he fulfills all of it. And so what happens is that Moses is the counterpart to Pharaoh, Pharaoh in his pride will not humble himself before the Lord. But what does scripture say about Moses? Remember? Maybe, maybe Joshua, his attendant, wrote this in after, you know, after Moses had written the law. But in 
in there somewhere, it says this, Moses was the most humble man on the earth. <laughs> I don't know if Moses wrote that or not. <laughs> it's hard to put that together, but I've said this before, um, and a lot of people disagree, but I think that you can know that you're humble. I don't know if you can boast about it, <laughs> but you, you can know it. So he's the most humble man on the earth, and then there's something that happens, and Moses has this unique thing. He is the deliverer of, the, of God's people, but he's also the person who has the Holy Spirit. He's also the person who comes face-to-face -face with God and receives the law. He's the person that declares, and he is the judge for the, the people. And as he's doing this, something happens that the Holy Spirit falls on some other people, and Joshua comes and he says, should we stop them? This is a story that we see repeated in the New Testament too, but should we stop them? Isn't that your job, Moses? I mean, is this like they shouldn't be prophesying? We should maybe just rein this in? He says, man, I wish everybody had the Holy Spirit. That's a prophecy that Moses speaks that we don't even always refer to. But he said, I, I wish that everybody had the spirit that I have. And he says, one day, and this is the prophecy that we do know, one day there will be a prophet like me, which is the fulfillment of Jesus, who is the deliverer. There will be one who will be like me someday, who will, who will not just rescue a people from a country. He will rescue humanity from its ultimate captivity, which is sin. He's coming. We're waiting for this to happen. But all the, the things of the Old Testament, of the Exodus, and it, it refers to this, this issue of God says, you need me. Even if you don't know it, you, you, you need me desperately. And the thing that's going to change your life is whether or not you will simply recognize that need and trust it. Trust your need for him and trust that he's good, which means that you'll have to humble yourself before God. And so humility is this interesting thing. It, all it means basically is exalting someone else above yourself. It's really all it ultimately really means. If you simplify it, Glorifying someone or something above yourself and, and the, the only humility that really works is to glorify God above yourself. That we will exalt him and lift him up and honor him and trust him and depend on him and obey him as God. That's humility that, that will actually change your life, rescue you from pride and destruction and all the rest and that God will honor, and he says that those who humble themselves, I will lift up. And how does that happen? He will bring you up to a place of peace, protection, fulfillment, purpose. He'll, he'll let you, in some way, complete the design that he put in you. <laughs> Every human being is pre-programmed for heaven. But that program is messed up. And so without God restoring it through Christ, what happens is that we're destined for hell. Does that make sense? That's, that's a hard thing to, to, to grasp. We choose hell. God invites us to heaven. It says in order for that to happen, you have to accept this fix. This Every, every so often your phone 
comes up with a, a new update for your software because it's, it's going to fix some bugs. Well, God has an ultimate fix for your software. It's Jesus Christ, which you have to download that. <laughs> Otherwise, you're running on the old program. So, this is what's... I, I, I'm still trying to figure out how this even works. God is going to humble himself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> God is going to humble himself. What is humility? Exalting someone else. Ultimately, humility is exalting God. How can God humble himself? Why would God need to humble himself? He's God. Does it, does it not compute? Like, that doesn't really make sense. It is right for God to be exalted. It is proper. It is, he's worthy of glory. So why would God humble himself? Why would he need to do that? And the answer is he does not need to do that. There's nothing in him that needs to humble himself. He deserves all the worship, all the glory, all the obedience, all the attention, all the worship that we could possibly give him, that the world could possibly give him. In fact, even the creation itself, the rocks would cry out if we didn't worship him because he deserves it no matter who chooses. And so he's going to humble himself, not because he needs to, but because we need him to. Because for thousands of years, we could not figure this thing out with all the teaching and all the coaxing and with all the commands and all the invitations. We just couldn't get it figured out. And so he says, I will show them. I will show them what absolute complete dependence looks like. I will show them what absolute trust looks like. I will show them humility because I will do what they couldn't do. I will do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. I will be the picture of humility. I'll go to the manger and then I'll go to the cross. And I'll do it for them to see what it looks like. And then we'll have the, the solution. So here's what he says. He who knew no sin did what? became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We don't do it because we're good. We don't do it because we're smart. We don't do it because we're worthy. We do it because he made it possible. He showed us the way. All through history, you just read the Old Testament. I get frustrated when I read the Old Testament. I read it and I'm just like, why can't they figure it out? Over and over and over, they just keep stumbling and messing up and backsliding and worshiping idols and just being, you know, humans. <laughs> and it just that cycle continues until Jesus breaks the cycle and he breaks the curse and he says, I will do it for them. I will be for them what they couldn't be for themselves. I'll, I will complete what they couldn't complete. I will fulfill what they couldn't possibly obey. I will do it. And so our response is this. Okay. Shepherds and angels. The same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. 
The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly there were with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They went with haste. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And here's the conclusion. Come and see. That's what they were given. Come and see. Just taste and see that the Lord is good. Everyone's invited to come and see how good Jesus is. You don't have to make a decision. Just taste. Just think about it. Just dwell on it for a moment. How good is God that he would give you a savior? Look at the world around you. Is there hope there? Is there a solution there? Is there a point to following the things of the world, the philosophies of the world, the, 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 the things that the world has to offer? Can you find fulfillment in that? When you come to the answer, which is, it should be clear and quick, no, not money, not success, not all the pleasures of the world that it has to offer. It doesn't bring the joy that you want. You can pursue it. It won't ever fulfill you. You come to that conclusion, then you, you look at Jesus and you say, which one am I going to choose? Just come and see, and then go and tell. For those who know Jesus, who know how good it is to be forgiven, to know how good it is to find purpose, to know how good it is to, to have hope, to know how good it is to be confident of heaven, to know how good it is to see God at work in your life, to be able to point to all those things that have happened in your life that you could not have planned, you could not have made happen, that you know that God had his hand at work, that he was doing things that were beyond you, you point to those things and you say, I don't have to create a testimony. All I have to do is let people know what God has already done, and that's enough. Here's Christmas. Come and see, go and tell, and let God do all that he's going to do. Amen? Father, we love you. We thank you so much for what you did in your son Jesus, that you would, you would do what you told us. You said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You call us your friends. You invite us to be your friends. You invite us to know you. You invite us to have peace with you, have joy and fulfillment in you. You make it possible. You fulfill every law, every prophecy, every, every sign, every symbol, every story, every every person in the Old Testament, Lord, you fulfill all of it. You, 
You show us the way. And Lord, we help us to just have hearts to come and see, not to be like Pharaoh. <laughs> what is it going to take for you to humble yourself? Lord, help us not to be like Pharaoh. Soften our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears. Give us a will that is receptive to you. You never turn anyone away. You invite everyone and you receive everyone. There's never a person that you reject. People reject you, but you don't reject anyone who comes to you. How great you are and how much we need you. And thank you for that, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you this morning, respond to the Holy Spirit, respond to the invitation of Jesus to come and know him. If you don't know him and you want to know him, it's not, it's not hard. I mean, it can be hard. It's not complicated, I, I guess I should say. You cannot change your heart, but you can want your heart to be changed. And so you can say, Lord, would you change my heart? I don't have you, and I want you, and I can't receive you without you doing something in me first. Would you do that? The altar is a place for you just to say yes to Jesus. Amen? We're here to pray with you. We're here to, to encourage you. Um, but nobody can make your decision for you. So let's stand and let's sing.